just before Christmas uh, last year, um, Christopher Hitchens, um, an atheistic journalist, uh, died from throat cancer. He was one of the more celebrated of the group that have now come to be called the New Atheists. He was an electric writer, a formidable debater, a truly gifted man. And he was also deeply impressive as he approached death. He gave several interviews about his uh, uh, terminal illness that he was facing and he spoke about it laconically with massive objectivity. His his interviewers, even the uh, relatively neutral ones, were clearly, every one of them, absolutely fascinated, transfixed even by, by his poise, his unshakable convictions and actually his humanity and even his humour as he faced death. It revealed a certain greatness about him. And uh, those last interviews of Hitchens came to my mind as I examined again this book of Job. Because frankly, compared to Christopher Hitchens, Job seems at first to measure up very poorly. Here is a man who's all over the place, isn't he? Emotionally. He uh, rails against God. He's vicious towards his so-called friends, if you read through it. He weeps. He wishes himself dead, as we saw in chapter 3. He seems that he is a man who has completely lost his composure. And you might argue that he suffered more than Hitchens did, because Job, we saw in the the first couple of chapters, lost his possessions, lost his children, lost his health, lost his reputation. You might say that's greater, but than the suffering of Hitchens, who who died amongst his friends, admired by millions, receiving the best medical care in the world. You might say that, but to be honest, I don't think uh, Christopher Hitchens felt that a slow death by cancer was particularly a minimal ordeal. That wasn't what gave him his poise. Perhaps then you suggest, um, you might suggest, Job's endless complaints here are recorded for us, not because they are something to be emulated, but because in the pattern of Scripture, um, often the failings of God's people are recorded. Perhaps then we're to examine what Job says and see this, this, this endless anguish as sub-Christian, a reality of how people uh, uh, struggle with um, uh, difficulties sometimes, but not really what God sets before us as the uh, uh, ideal. Actually, that um, uh, falls foul of God's verdict on Job at the end of the book of Job. I'm afraid we're going to have to do a little bit of flicking through Job. It's not too difficult um, this morning. I want you to see one or two passages and one of them is in chapter 42 in uh, verse 7 God addresses Job's 
friends who have not spoken the truth. And God says, you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So God at least seems to approve of what Job has been talking about, has been saying. And if you read all the things that Job says about God, I wouldn't blame you for being a little bit surprised. And more than that, actually, in the New Testament, I won't ask you to turn, turn to it, but in, in James chapter 5, James says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, be patient and stand firm. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So, James seems to identify Job as a good example. That's where we get the phrase, the patience of Job. James himself, notice, moves from talking about patience to a slightly different word, perseverance, when he starts talking about uh, Job himself. But that doesn't get us very far, does it? If you meet someone complaining as endlessly and vitriolically and violently as Job is, you wouldn't call him immediately a godly perseverer. And yet Job, at the end of all this, is commended by God. And therefore, I think we've got to dig a little bit deeper. We've got to try to understand why, actually, the Bible considers Job's approach to suffering to be greater than Christopher Hitchens. The first thing we need to see from uh, this as we examine Job is the massive freedom that God permits Job to have in his speech within certain clear limits. And that's not obvious, particularly at the beginning, because Job begins uh, dealing with his suffering with incredible stoicism. Back in Job chapter 1, verse 20, um, when um, various disasters have struck him, his um, Uh, uh, we read, At this Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, we're told, Job did not sin by charging God with uh, um, uh, with wrongdoing. Here is a profound truth that Job articulates, which strengthens him. Actually, everyone arrives with nothing, departs with nothing. Everything that we are given in this world, we hold on leasehold. God holds the freehold. And for every single person, eventually, we are stripped of everything we acquired in our life and we return again to the grave, utterly naked. That is not unique to Job, that is everybody's experience. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, he says. He begins 
to break, though, in his response to suffering when he suffers in his own body. Chapter 2, verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. But even here, he keeps the expression of his misery within certain limits. Verse 9 of chapter 2, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die, she says. Here you are, Job. Here's two simple, simple solutions for you. One, curse God. The other, take your own life. That'll solve it for you. Give up on this God of justice. He's clearly not served you properly. Indeed, Job, give up on life. Why don't you? He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And again we read, in all this Job did not sin in what he said. Extraordinary resilience in this man, but then he begins to crack. And he makes makes the most extraordinarily painful reading. And I I want to read a large part of Job chapter 3 again to you to help us to hear the heartbreak and the pain in this man. May the day of my birth perish and the night that they said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May may God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness um, seize it. (coughs) May it not be included among the days of the year nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. May those who, are ready to rouse, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me and hide trouble from my eyes. Verse 20, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food, my groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace No quietness. I have no rest. Only turmoil. This is is the beginning of a a torrent of, of, of pain and anguish that then goes on again and again and again until Job chapter, chapter 31. Notice, notice though, how he is expressing himself within certain limits. His his wife invited him to curse God. He will not do that. He curses the day of his birth. He will not walk away from God in that simple way. The philosopher Bertrand Russell uh, um, 
uh, an atheist said that in the face of innocent suffering, you have to conclude either God is good, but not all-powerful, in which case there's no point in worshipping him, or he's all-powerful, but not good, in which case he's a monster and should not be worshipped. There's an elegant simplicity about that, but it is not something that persuades Job. He will not uh, surrender to a facile set of solutions like that. He will not simply curse God and walk away. And similarly, he longs for death. He says that again and again in chapter 3. And his wife had invited him, take your life. You know, there are, there are frankly few people who don't at some point in their life think, I wish I was dead. And for some people, that is a dominant long-term thought. But Job will not give in to that siren voice. That is a subhuman act. He senses that. Painful as it is, we express the dignity of our humanity by living on for as long as God has allotted us life. Let me say to you if, you, if you are someone who is troubled by suicidal thoughts, then do seek help. It is not your best option. I have spoken to many people who have considered or even tried to take their life and when they have come through that dark tunnel, they all consistently say they regret that. It is not the solution as Job knows. But apart from simply walking away from God and cursing him or simply, or, or simply terminating his life, frankly, Job is pretty unrestrained in his compliance. At one point, for instance, he, he parodies scripture. Psalm 8, um, uh, a wonderful uh, uh, psalm, says this, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. But on Job's lips, that, that very similar words, in fact, get twisted into a bitter complaint. Look, just turn with me to Job chapter 7. Just a couple of pages on, verses 17 to 19. Psalm 8 in your mind. And read verse 17. What is mankind that you make so much of them, that you give them so much attention, that you examine them every morning and test them every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant, says Job? Remember, the final conclusion is going to be, Job has spoken well of me. It is not a sin to wrestle with Scripture. It is not a sin to question it, to test it against the real world. Even to say, at times, frankly, it doesn't fit with my experience. Indeed, we're going to see next week, it is Job's friends 
the ones strongly criticised by God, who seem actually to be the more theologically orthodox ones in these interactions. They can recite the, the creed without even thinking. Indeed, that is their problem. They don't think. They are plastic saints. They are superficial believers. They wear masks of godliness. But actually, we're going to see next week, those masks come off in the friends. And I have to say, for, th- for 30 years... Now, I've been rubbing shoulders with successive generations of, of, of especially young people who come from Christian homes and there are a proportion of them who speak totally orthodox language, who appear to be admirable believers and yet who finally, it becomes clear, are not believers at all. In this city, some of Oxford's most active campaigners against Christianity are the offspring of church leaders who, when they first came to Oxford, attended evangelical churches. What happened to them? Well, their story is surprisingly consistent. Life happened to them. And for a while, they kept the lid on their nagging doubts. For a while, they applied simplistic answers to their internal struggles until finally, the the tissue paper thin veneer of faith that they had worn for so long tore apart and there was nothing left underneath it. And that is not Job's way. He will not parrot scripture like some some animated doll. He wrestles with it. He questions it. He will not give up. His relentless quest to match his experience with what the scriptures say. Listen, for instance, to what he says in his his last speech to his friend on in Job 27. His friends who have consistently peddled simplistic answers to his questions. Job 27 verse 2 As surely God, as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked, my, my tongue will not utter lies, I will never admit you are right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Now, we've seen elsewhere, his innocence was not total. There was repentance that he was going to have to do um, uh, uh, as time went on. But it was his integrity that drove him to question and question and question, and question. And it was the lack of integrity of his friends that drove them to paper over the cracks in their theology with simplistic answers. 
do not be afraid to question God. Job exercises enormous freedom as he speaks to God and about God. And God approves of that. He doesn't go for the simplistic option, curse God. He doesn't go for the, for, for the other option, die. He stays. And he questions. Why, then, is he questioning? What, what's driving him so relentlessly um, through these chapters? Well, the first one is so obvious and yet, yet we do need to dwell on it for just a few minutes. Job is searching for justice. If you've been here, you've seen that. doesn't claim himself to be totally innocent, but he does say what has happened to him is not justice. His complaint about God is he has denied me justice. Did you notice that in chapter 27 verse 2? Or in Job 19 verse 7 he says, Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. You see, Christopher Hitchens, for all his passionate political campaigning that he engaged in in his life, actually gave up on an ultimate justice many years before his death. Hitchens embraced a view of the world in which random things happen for no reason at all. And he suggested that, the, that uh, we must just simply accept the way things are. Half a century earlier, um, a Christian philosopher called Frederick Copleston debated with um, one of Hitchens' great... Um, uh, forebears Bertrand Russell in a radio program and Cobbleston asked Russell the atheist um, who himself was actually a great political campaigner like Hitchens he asked Russell if the world is meaningless and random where then did Bertrand Russell get his idea of justice from and Russell's answer was that he distinguished good and evil in the way that he distinguished colours. He preferred some to others and so, it was, so he campaigned for them. But there was no absolute basis in it at all. That is the inevitable, inconsistent world of idealistic atheists. They search for justice while believing ultimately that there is no such thing. Hitchens told his interviewers that he didn't spend his time worrying about whether his illness was fair or not. It just was. Despite the fact that he'd spent most of his life worrying about whether all sorts of other things were fair or not. And Job won't have that. No, if there's not justice somehow at the root of reality, says Job, there is no justice at all. And I am questing for that deep 
justice. He is turbulently wrestling to find some justice at the root of his experience because just as Shakespeare put it, he knows that otherwise life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And though the Hitchenses of this world may feel they must just reconcile themselves to that nothingness as they approach death, Job will not. People of faith will not. And it makes them actually sometimes more turbulent than their atheist peers. Job is searching for justice. And Job is searching possibly more than anything else for a relationship with God. Again and again that comes out. It is actually striking when you read the words of Job how little he mentions the specifics of his troubles. They are not actually the focus of his anguish. His ultimate cry is about the absence of God. Let me read to you a few. Job chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. Or Job 13, verses 20 to 22. Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. In other words, let's have a face-to-face about this, God. Let's talk about it. But you're nowhere to be seen. Or in Job 23, he says... Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. He longs to see God and he cannot. C.S. Lewis Lewis put it as poignantly as anyone ever has, I think, in his uh, book, A Grief Observed, after uh, his wife, Joy, died. He wrote this. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy... So happy you have no sense of needing him. So happy you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will, or so it feels, be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain. What do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. 
you may as well turn away. The longer you wake, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? Of course, the atheist faces trouble having long ago banished all hope from their soul. And so they face it, at least the great ones, with the calm of quiet despair. But not so the believer. You see, Job's turbulence is a mark of his faith. Faith which is stretched almost to breaking point, but a faith which will not stop beating on the door of heaven. And Job and C.S. Lewis and millions upon millions of believers who have suffered and struggled and questioned and wrestled with God testify they have not been disappointed. We're going to see in a few weeks' time. Job finally meets God. Finally sees him. He will say there both, I repent in dust and ashes. But also my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. That doesn't come easy. That doesn't come quick very often. But it comes. And C.S. Lewis too finally found deep contentment in knowing Jesus. Jesus who came to this earth as the exact representation of God's being. Since Jesus walked the earth... Actually, all of us have been able to see God in ways which Job could not even imagine. Now, let me say, that does not remove the struggle, that does not remove the anguish, that does not eliminate the pain and the frustration of dealing with suffering in this world and not knowing what is going on and not being able to ask God. C.S. Lewis himself, a believer testifies to that. But actually, Jesus gives us access to some answers that Job would have longed for. Jesus was called a man of sorrows. Jesus engaged with our struggles in profound and personal ways. You find Jesus weeping for a dead friend. You find Jesus confessing to his closest friends that his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Jesus praying all night with such intensity and agony that sweat fell from him like dripping from a wound. 
you find Jesus dying a cruel, unjust and painful death. And Jesus crying out from the cross, a cry which could have been on Job's lips, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You find Jesus receiving no instant comfort but having as the perfect man to go through the most extraordinary human trial. But we find Jesus as well rising from the dead. Jesus exalted to the right hand of God now united with him as the promise that there is hope. It does not eliminate the struggle. But it does contain it. And I have to say, as I watched a number of interviews this week of Christopher Hitchens, and then turned back to the book of Job. I have to say I turned away with distaste from Hitchens. His calm despair. And I turned back to that man wrestling with God. And I thought to myself, I'd actually rather, in this world of trouble, be profoundly united with Jesus than be anywhere else. I'd rather experience what the Apostle Paul described as sharing in his sufferings so that in some way I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I'd rather face the trials of this life with the agony of Job than with the calmness of Christopher Hitchens. Because there's something horribly subhuman, isn't there? with just embracing death with the calmness of an animal who has no hope. Ultimately, the only way to be human is to wrestle with the injustice we see in this world and throw ourselves on Christ. And so find hope.